Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to encourage listeners to be more philanthropic, to act sustainably and to embrace social entrepreneurship. And before we kick off, if you press that subscribe button on your iPhone or Android device, that would be absolutely great. And today is my absolute pleasure to welcome on board Janet Fretcher, who is the president of the JB and MK Pritzker Family Foundation. Uh, Pritzker is an, a name that's uh, very well known to many people, particularly if, the, if you're in the U.S. Uh, the Pritzker family own the Hyatt Hotels, and also J.B. Pritzker is the current governor of Illinois, the state of Illinois in the U.S. Uh, Janet, welcome on board. It's a pleasure to have you on the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you, Alberto. I'm delighted to be here and really looking forward to talking to you. Ah, wonderful. Well, it's uh, it's great that you're making time. And uh, why don't we just kick right off and tell me a little bit about the uh, about the foundation that you're running? Sure. So uh, the JB and MK Pritzker Foundation were was founded, as you could probably imagine, by JB and MK Pritzker. Um, we have three main areas of focus. Uh, the first is the area I met Alberto through, which is the Pritzker Children's Initiative. It's a focus on um, youngest, our very youngest, from prenatal to age three. We have the Pritzker Community Health Initiative, which is focused on increasing health access, reduction of AIDS, um, reduction in, in unattended pregnancies. So a number of major health um, areas of focus. And then we have a third focus, which is on human and civil rights. So an example of our work there would be on um, our focus on reducing the number of women who are in prison, for example. Right. So it's a, it's a broad portfolio. And do I have this right? About a billion dollars that you're looking to invest to improve our, our world for the better. That's correct. Is that intimidating? Um, it's, uh, it's liberating. Okay. That's a good way of looking <laughs> at it. How does one go about thinking of, of allocating a billion dollars worth of resources into, uh, into philanthropy? Where, where do you start? Um, we believe in starting with uh, big goals. You know, if you've got that level of resources to invest, and, you know, obviously, as you know, even though it's a, a lot of money, it's not enough to solve any of the major problems that we all care about. So we really think about how you invest that level of resources to be catalytic and to create long lasting change by um, bringing others into the field in a strategic way with you. And we think about setting very large goals. I'm a big believer that with that level of resources, we should be making marginal change. We should be making very dramatic change. So we set goals for ourselves, um, and I can give you some examples. In our children's initiative, our goal is that in the next five years, a million more children will have access to high-quality services. Um, in our um, community health initiative, our goal is that we will reduce the number of uninsured children in the city of Chicago in half in the next five years, and that we'll reduce unintended teen pregnancies in half in the next five years. Um, and we'll reduce the women who are in prison in our state in half in the next seven years. So we've set very large goals. And when you set a goal like that, you will never hit that goal if you think marginally. You have to think very much out of the box in a very different way and think about how you can use your resources to be catalytic and bring a number of sectors together. And geographically, are you quite focused? Uh, you, you mentioned Chicago. And what's your geographic footprint? So our children's initiative and our human and civil rights initiatives are both national within the U.S. 
And then the work that we do on the community health side is mostly within the state, depending on what the issue area is. It could be state, county, city. One of your two founders is the current governor of the state of Illinois. What challenges or opportunities does that does that present? What are the uh, dynamics there? Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting, right? Illinois is probably the state that we are going to be the least active in. All right. <laughs> so uh, JB went off of our, JB and MK both, went off of our board and out of our investment decisions when JB became governor. Right. Now, um, JB was a businessman uh, before he went to become governor. He was a private equity investor and a venture capitalist. Um, and so, you know, I was fortunate to have had a lot of time with both JB and MK, and we crafted our strategies and set our big goals with them. Um, because um, being catalytic it involves, you know, and we will never be able to support the work that we want to do through only private funds. So we are going to eventually have to bring uh, public funding into any of our work. And the only state where that creates an issue for us is the state of Illinois. So we are actually more active on the public policy side outside of the state than we are within the state because we want to be careful to not overlap in any way with anything JB is doing. And we can't actually communicate with him at all. So um, we want to avoid the chance that we unintentionally trip over him or, you know, end up um, even on the same path with him. Yeah. And tell me, how did you, um, how did you get into this? Uh, because you, you used to be at the, uh, you used to be the CEO of the Special Olympics International. And also before that, if I remember correctly from our last conversation, you were a CEO of the uh, United Way in Chicago, which our Amer- American listeners in particular would know about and originally um, MBA from, uh, from Kellogg at Northwestern. So how to, it's interesting trajectory and not many people with an MBA make it into running foundations uh, a decade or two ago. When, when I did my master's, um, my business degree you know, 20 years ago, uh, half the class wanted to go into investment banking, the other into management consulting and very few actually cared about sustainability. Now it's very different, but Tell us about the uh, career trajectory and how you found yourself here today. So um, I, when I graduated from business school, that's exactly what my business All right. Was. <laughs> <laughs> I might add marketing and brand management into that. Sure. Kellogg. Kellogg. Yeah, Kellogg is Kellogg. Yeah. That, that would be it. Um, I, I always wanted to go into the nonprofit sector, but the advice that I got when I was in college was that business school taught you how to run a business and that it was a great background if you intended to run a nonprofit and that in any time you really wanted to make big change, you really needed to engage the business community. So actually working in business allows you to really understand how business folks think um, and they can afford to really train you well. So the advice I got was to go into the private sector first and then make the move over into the nonprofit sector. So I might be biased, you know, in fact I am, but yeah. I do think it's a great, um, you know, there's, I just think having that MBA was incredibly helpful to me when I had to run some, you know, large global businesses, you know, knowing knowing how marketing, finance, accounting, IT all tie together and how to think strategically um, and how to drive implementation plans through an organization. Those are all things that I don't think you learn any better than at business school and then in the business world. So I think it was incredibly helpful. I did start in investment banking, so that was my early career. Um, right. I, you know, a finance accounting type of guy. 
Um, but I always had the intention to move over into the nonprofit sector. My first move over was actually working for um, the Chicago area Fortune 500 business community. My board was all CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And we actually brought expertise from the business sector into government within the state of Illinois and our school system and our city government. So it was a nice you know, way for me to straddle both sectors. Yeah. Um, and then from there, I moved into the Aspen Institute and running United Way. Um, I ran the National Safety Council and then Special Olympics. I, you know, the last three were um, large NGOs, and I, that's what I thought I did, particularly those that were struggling a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I thought I did. And so when JB approached me about running a foundation, you know, my first response was, that's not really what I know how to do. Yeah. I know how to run these global entities around a, you know, global strategy and drive that through a pretty good sized organization. I'm, I don't really have any experience running um, a foundation. And he basically said, you know, you think like a business person and I'm a business person. I have a lot of resources that I want to invest to make as big of an impact as I can. And obviously your job in your last organizations was to take the resources and the strengths of your organization to make as big of an impact as you could with that organization. You know, and that worked, you know, in my mind, I thought, all right, you know, what's wrong with a billion dollars invest and making an impact? Maybe I'm a little too narrow minded in the way I'm looking at this. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I have to confess, I probably bring more of that orientation into the foundation, you know, the orientation of what's it like on the programmatic side. Um, but I do think there's some commonalities, the ability to think strategically, to set some big inspiring goals, bringing together sectors and collaboration. So I think the only way you make sustained change is when you've got government, um, private sector and NGOs aligned around that goal and each brings into that work um, the resources and the orientation um, that only they can bring. And when you have that happening, that's when you really see big change um, and that is sustained change. And so in some ways it's similar in that in each of our work, we, we really do that. We really craft strategies, our investments all link. They all play different, pull different levers of that strategy. And it's all about really mobilizing and catalyzing. Hmm. How, did, how did you meet uh, J.B. Pritzker? It's funny. Um, he and I, you know, had uh, many, many folks in common, you know, based on my, you know, when I was at Special Olympics, I was more global focused, but in the earlier part of my career, I was more Illinois focused, but I didn't, I had not met him. Um, he had actually hired a search firm. I think they were looking a year and a half before um, I decided to leave Special Olympics. So I actually met him through a search firm. Ah, okay. Okay. So it took them a year and a half to find the, uh, the gold standard. Oh, but a nonprofit person who thought like a business person. <laughs> was it very different, uh, or is it very different, um, being at the foundation side as opposed to running the Special Olympics? It is, obviously. You know, at Special Olympics, we were in 170 countries. We had 250 um, entities. Um, so when you crafted a strategy, you had to get buy-in literally around the world. And you had to... Um, you know, be persistent, but patient, right? And impatient, but patient. You know, you had to really think about how quickly you could drive a pace of change and still get the buy-in you needed. Because as you know, everything happens at the ground, right? So whatever it was I was going to decide as CEO would never come alive and be real unless we really had the buy-in from everyone within the organization. So a lot of it was thinking about how to do that, how to 
drive change um, literally around the world, right? And how you scale, right? How you think about um, an intervention that may work in New York, but you've got to make it work in Malawi and Egypt and um, Mongolia. Um, and in some ways that's helpful here because we, um, and particularly in the prenatal three space, um, the supply is waste short of demand. So we're working with a lot of entities as they think about how to scale. And it is helpful to have spend a lot of time scaling. Mm. Um, and common to both, obviously, is that you craft a strategy and you think about how to take the resources of your organization and partner with others in a catalytic way to drive really significant change, right? So that strategic piece is the same. The partnership piece is the same. Thinking about how you break that into pieces and and constantly look, is this working or not? You know, how do we know it's working? You know, all that is, is you know, very comparable. My thought would be that you probably have a lot more freedom now than you did running the Special Olympics because fewer stakeholders, maybe clearer purpose um, in terms of how to deploy these funds without having to consult too many people. For sure. I mean, For it's sure. certainly on the resource development side, it, you know, on the resource deployment side, it's much easier. Is it is it a fairly nimble organization, the foundation, in terms of if you find something that's quite interesting or one of your colleagues identifies something that's really quite interesting to uh, to invest in, can you simply go ahead and, and, and um, allocate resources to support that or must you wait um, for, for, for a board meeting to happen twice a year? That no, sort of stuff? we can do it anytime. So um, we are very um, nimble. Um, you know, as you know, when you run a big organization, everything, you know, you build these systems, you know, to make things happen. And the bigger you get, the more you have to do that, right? What you can do with 10 people is different when you get to 100 or 500. Sure. Um, so I keep, you know, the bigger we get, I keep trying to avoid like the plague, you know, putting in place systems and processes. Yeah. Um, because I just love the freedom to be very nimble. And we can, we really can um, see something that's attractive. If, if, um, something changes if and then and it happens all the time right where you see an opportunity where the door opens quickly mm -hmm. you know we're, we're almost always the first foundation in because right. we can we can make a decision on a dime um and we usually are the first funder in and then the others you know as they go through their processes fall in you know have the opportunity to you know come in behind us so mm -hmm. we get calls a lot from some of the other foundations saying we really want to do this you know would you like to partner with us in when we say sure, they you know they say, would you mind being the first dollars in, and we'll do we'll do the second half. Right. Plus, I imagine your name, right, the brand recognition, Pritzker. If if they you know, people must think if well if they're going in and they're funding it and they're funding it aggressively, well, it sends the right signal to the rest of the potential donor base. I hope so. I mean, we're pretty outcomes focused too. You know, we we spend a lot of time on the measurement side, so I mm -hmm. think they know that um, when we make investments, we are really focused on what success looks like and how it builds to a bigger picture. So hopefully you know, the rigor we bring to it is helpful too. What, um, well, speaking about what success looks like, what, what does it look like to you in say 10 years time? I know you mentioned a few things about different metrics you want to achieve in say three or four or five years, but let's, let's be a little bit more long-term focused and look at say 2030 with the sustainable development goals. And if, if you and I are having this conversation in 10 years time, what would success look like to you? Um, success would look like every child, um, or let's say every pregnant mother, has an opportunity to um, 
to interface with whatever system she's in, a state system, a national system, and most probably it'll be state, where if she needs resources, she needs a place to live, she needs depression counseling, she needs substance abuse services, that she's able to access those services. And then when she has her baby, that the family has an opportunity to have a home visit. And if there's a need for additional resources, they're referred to it. And every time she goes to a pediatrician with the baby, um, they um, have an opportunity to access additional resources when they need it. And they're referred to those resources and made sure that they work for them. And that we're able to feed that information from, from before birth into our school systems and be able to really see what types of services are making the biggest impact and able to make sure that the family gets the support they need and the baby gets the support they need. Are you feeling optimistic about being able to make that, uh, transform that vision into a reality? I am. You know, we've, um, I think things have changed dramatically in the last uh, three to five years um, for a number of reasons. We've been able to make the case with the brain science that um, the first few years of life are the foundation for all future learning behavior and health. Um, that literally it's those early years where the brain develops, those synapses form. And if we can create a strong foundation, because brains build on a foundation, then it, particularly the executive functioning skills that a, children need, a child needs to be successful in school and be successful in life are really formed those early years. So the ability to be persistent and to pay attention, to delay gratification, all that happens in those first few years of life. And because of that, if you invest in those early years, um, with high quality interactions with that child, um, we have Nobel laureate economists that tell us that those children have better success um, in earnings. They have lower hypertension, lower obesity, lower interactions with the prison systems. So we know that those early interventions um, make a lifelong impact. And I think later this fall, we'll see more information that it's not only the brain, but it's all the systems. Um, particularly those that are tied to very significant long-term health outcomes that are really formed in those early years. So there has definitely become a much greater understanding among the public and policymakers that if you really want to alleviate poverty, you really want to change the trajectory of the future, not just for that child, but for their children, because we researched that it also impacts their children. Mm -hmm. uh, the best investments are in the earliest years, and there is a very significant return um, on both private and public investments in those early years. And I think we now have a lot of the public and policy policymakers that understand that. Um, we need to keep pushing that, um, particularly around the health outcomes, and we'll see more research that tells us that. But now we need to build the systems that respond to that. So now we're having policymakers say, okay, I get that. I understand it. Now what am I supposed to do? Right. What does that mean for me in terms of public policy, in terms of the types of programs that those policies um, would suggest? And so we're now starting to see um, programs that are working, um, but need to go to scale. And in particular, we just invested in creating a center that will link research policy and program. Mm -hmm. So we very quickly make the link between, okay, here's what the research is telling us today. Here's what that would imply for best practice policy. These are the types of programs that are getting implemented by that. And here's the types of outcomes we're seeing at the community level. So really an ability to be able to connect those. And that's something that you really don't see in other fields. And I think this field, because it is more nascent, 
um, we'll be able to build those infrastructures in a way that other fields have had a hard time doing. Yeah. How do you um, how do you educate policymakers? So I guess I think you alluded to it a little bit. On the one hand, it's about increasing that awareness and I guess getting them to buy into the whole notion that yes, indeed, investing in early years has positive returns. Um, but how do you educate those policymakers to recognize what good looks like in a program, in an intervention, because they may be well-meaning um, and try to vote with a big heart, uh, but they may not necessarily be in a position to make the right choice in terms of what programs to back. And so what does that interaction look like in, in practice, you know? So it looks um, looks like a, a variety of things um, because, as you probably know, being a, a communicator yourself, you have to communicate many times in many ways, right, to mm -hmm. actually make the point. So the content piece comes from the researchers and being able to link the researchers that are looking at research from a variety of fields, from the um, medical field, from the public health side, from sociology, you know, from just a variety of different fields and really look at the implications of that research. And as I said, we've just created this new center at the University of Texas that will really do that, you know, really bring together a number of the researchers. They will then also be looking at what the implications of that research are for public policy. So they will make recommendations that say, based on the research, this is what best practice public policy looks like. Um, and they will also then be looking at how those policies have been playing out within the variety of states and what that actually looks like on the ground. So that's the, you know, what the what it is. Now, mm -hmm. how to get that to policymakers takes a number of different forms. So, um, you know, there's the folks, you know, that you and I both know at the Harvard Center for the Developing mm -hmm. Child that probably have the uh, most sophisticated and the most listened to voice um, in this space. Um, we tend to work with a lot of organizations that touch policymakers. So we work with the National Governors Association, the Hunt Institute, which works with um, new and current policymakers, um, the um, NCSL, the National Conference for State Legislators. So we work at the national level with um, where those policymakers turn for advice. And then within each state, we work with a number of um, public sector and advocacy and NGOs that work in coalitions and work directly with state governors, um, state legislators, and the folks that are in administrations. Mm. So we touch at multiple levels. We have a very large um, state initiative where, where we invest in 22 states. Uh, and it, in each of those, it's coalitions of business, government, legislators, nonprofit sector. And then we're in 29 communities, again, with that coalition of a variety of different folks. And then we spend a lot of time on communications to really pop the work that's happening at the state and at the community level to say, this is what it looks like. It looks like this. So um, others have a chance to really look at it, to see who's like them, and to really see how it plays out live. All right. Now, if you're anything like me, you probably only have 24 hours in the day, and you probably need to sleep during some of those hours. And I'm just curious if you have to prioritize things, the advocacy and driving policy and research versus the investment decisions and the programmatic side. And how do you allocate your time? How do you prioritize? Is it all equally important? Um, give us a little bit of insight into how you go about that, because it seems like you have quite a full plate. 
yeah, it's about what gets to the goal the bit, you know, the most, right? So our goal is a million more children have access to high quality services. So which of those levers and which components of those levers is going to make the biggest impact? Our state and community strategy is a tipping point strategy. So our focus is let's get those states and communities that are the most likely to be able to be successful. And then let's create surround sound and visibility to it so that the other states and communities follow. So it's really about um, what are the ones most likely to be successful? You know, it's a blend of numbers and also the ones that are, um, you know, geographically dispersed and where people pay the most attention within a region. So obviously California, where a huge portion of our um, children are, New York, Texas, right? Those are all big numbers. They're also somewhat geographically dispersed. And so we really look at, you know, that's the nice thing about having a, a I always call it a BHAG, big hairy mm-hmm. all day goal. Yeah. You know, you put your time, money in the things that are going to make the biggest impact. Do you spend a lot of time traveling across the U.S. trying to engage policymakers and and see what's going on in different uh, parts of the country? And what's your average day-to-day look like? I mean, give us a little bit of insight into that. So, you know, one of the things I did take from my days at Special Olympics, um, it's having the right people doing the right things, Mm -hmm. right? So um, a lot of my time is making sure we have the right staff, that we have the right partners, um, and that the, that we're partnering in the right way. So it's really about finding the partners that share our dream and who have the best ability um, to make it a reality because they share that dream. Um, so it's really, a, you know, it's about thinking strategically about what we want to do. And because we're a small organization, we don't actually do the work. That means we have to find the folks that are the most likely to be successful in making that work a reality. So it's really about, again, thinking strategically, what's the highest impact, then who are the right partners um, to be able to make that happen? Because as you know, if you pick the right people and the right partners, it's a beautiful thing and magic happens. Sure. (laughs) If the wrong ones, you're spending a whole lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. I guess when I think of partnerships, there's two ways of looking at it. One is the partners that you might have in terms of jointly going in to fund something or to support something and having a sort of little collaborative or coalition. Um, and then on the other hand, you have your delivery partners, so the people who are going to be executing things for you on the front lines. And um, But let me ask you about the former in terms of that sort of coalition or collaborative or, or matched giving or matched funding. How do you, um, do you tend to work with the same other foundations who are, who are like-minded and, and also of equal sort of financial standing, I guess? Yeah, we, we work a lot um, with other funders at both the national level and at the state level and at the community level mm-hmm. and at the programmatic level. So, um, you know, I think the key with all of that is to align our minds around a strategy and then to really look at um, how we can learn from each other and how we can pull our resources to make something happen that neither of us could make happen alone. So um, we do work very closely with the large national funders in a lot of different collaboratives. We have a collaborative on home-based childcare, on pediatrics, um, on big bets, um, on different programs. We're, we're collaborating with a number of funders on program called All Our Kin, on Family Connects. You know, there's just, I could go on about, you know, at the state level, um, each of every 
you know, every one of our investments at the state level has local partners um, at the state and community level, because as a national funder, we're not going to be the sustained source of funding at the state and community level. So we think a lot about what our role is, right? So we, as I, we talked earlier, we can get in quickly and take advantage of opportunities as they create itself. Like when the federal government created um, what's called the CCDB, um, some additional sources of funds that the states had to apply for. Mm -hmm. So we had a very short period of time where states had to apply for a lot of money. Well, we can very quickly get technical resources out to the states to help them get their act together, you know, put their um, plans together to be able to make um, the right applications for the funds. You just need to be able to move fast to do that, right? So as a funder, I think we tend to think about how we can be catalytic. So that might mean how do we partner with a program that is at 10 states right now, but needs to be able to have the capacity to get to 50. So how do they create a plan and think about how to um, how to move their intervention into infrastructure that's out there already. So how do they get out of the direct service piece and really think about how they can they can use existing infrastructure to deliver on the work that they do? Mm. So it might be that way. In, in the case of the home-based child care work, um, most of our children um, that are at risk are not in child care centers. They are with friends, family, neighbors at home. Um, we don't have any line of sight really into what that quality of, of that care is. And there are a number of foundations that said, we know that's where a lot of our children are, but it's such a wide open space that we know so little about. How do we even think about making good investments there? So there are 10 of us foundations that basically came together. We hired um, an organization to do this, you know, the groundwork and the strategy with us. And then to, to basically, we just now hired a, um, a staff person to actually take that strategy and craft investments that we can all invest in together. So it's really about trying to take, you know, the ocean and um, not boil it. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Strategically about how can we really move the needle here. Anything in particular that you're working on right now that you, um, that either is particularly exciting or challenging that you're trying to, um, to see through? I, you know, to be honest, I think we've got the benefit of every one of our initiatives we're really excited about. Yeah. <laughs> we are, we're fortunate in that we're in the phase of our work where we're, we're starting to see our dreams come alive, where we've got strategies and we've made investments, some of which worked, some of which didn't work, um, but where we're starting to see the kinds of things that have traction and where we are getting to know the spaces really well and have some really terrific partners. So. You know, when I mentioned at the start, you know, the different goals we set, those are not pie in the sky goals. Those are ones that we think we've got a very good chance of being able to make a reality. Um, and I think that's the beauty of philanthropy is that you can be catalytic. You can, if you're, you come out of the business side and you really think about how can I leverage my resources um, in the best way to make a dramatic and you know, concrete impact, there are all sorts of ways to do that where you can um, you can be catalytic and then let hopefully, you know, if you can prove the case, you know, government comes in, business comes in, and you're able to leverage your resources in a very dramatic way and where you can literally see very tangible, sustained change in a very big way. Yeah. How do you how do you formulate those goals? Because you have you seem to have that clarity of thought and purpose in terms of what you want to achieve and I have to tell you, I come across so many 
much, much smaller organizations that are constantly trying to rewrite their mission and vision, uh, what success looks like. It seems to be an ongoing journey that never really gets answered properly. And I'm just curious, how did you get to that point? Who sat around the table and what sort of time did it take? And who said, okay, at the end of the day, okay, this is locked down. This is what it is. We're going to go ahead and move. Yeah. So, um, with, we first started with what areas we wanted to focus in and, um, you know, JV actually started with, you know, a desire to focus on poverty alleviation. And it was after a lot of work that he came to the early childhood space, um, because of the, you know, the research on the brain science and, you know, the research from economics that that's the best place to invest. And once we got to, you know, for example, we chose unintended pregnancies and uninsurance because we did a scan of what the need was within the state and in the community and we're able to see that these were areas of pretty large need um, and where we thought that there's an ability to move the needle. So if you take something um, like unintended teen pregnancies, we did a scan of the country and saw initiatives in a couple other states that really focused on long-lasting contraceptives where they literally were able to cut the teen pregnancy rate in half um, by basically um, training and making available long-lasting contraceptives. And then the state ended up picking up the cost of that because they saw tremendous cost reductions. When we looked at reducing the uninsured rate in the city of Chicago, we realized very quickly that the, the entity that touched all those children was actually the Chicago public school system and that mm -hmm. it was an advantage to them to have their children be covered because they got reimbursement for the expenses that they were um, that they were being charged with those children. So it was actually a financial benefit to them to have those children uninsured. Then all we had to do was think about how to actually make that happen on the ground. Um, same with the women's prison system. We spent a lot of time, you know, with people who are in the space. And the um, the advantage we bring is that most of the time, because resources aren't available, people think about marginal change. When we said to the folks that had been in the space. Okay, if you wanted to cut that in half, if you want to cut teen pregnancies in half, you want to cut insurance rate, uninsured children in half, you want to cut the number of women in prison in half, what would it take? You know, and they're like, well, we can't even think about that. We're like, just think about that. Sure. <laughs> you know, just for a moment. Suspend, you know, suspend um, reality and think about what it would take. You know, and they would come back and say, okay, here's how we think we can get 10%. And we're like, no, forget 10%. You know, go back and think again. You know, well... We know we get 30%, but this stuff would have to happen. Like, okay, forget that. Think 50%. We would have to happen it to get 50%. You know, they'd come back and say, well, we need this kind of stuff to happen. It would take these resources. And we'd be like, okay, done. Let's do it. <laughs> you know? um, so it gives us the advantage to be able to enable people to think that way. Um, and then we create the strategy with them. All right, if that's what we're trying to do and you think we can get there that way, what needs to happen? needs to be at the table, what types of investments need to be made, what do we need to prove to who, um, and then we kind of set, all right, so after a year, if we do this, then what would we know? After two years, if we do this, what would we know? You know, and as you know, in a strategy that big, some things you're like, what were we thinking? Okay, that mm -hmm. was stupid. You know, other things you're like, wow, that worked way better than we thought. Let's double down there, right? Other times you're like, okay, was it the partner we chose? Was it the vehicle we chose? Or was it just a bad idea, right? So you you keep looking to say, what did we learn from the last year and how do we adapt our strategy 
um, to keep moving in a bigger, deeper way. So you sort of have a clear strategy for where you want to go, and then you have a, a yearly feedback loop, perhaps, where you're willing to be proven wrong, if indeed you, you made decisions that were a bit suboptimal, and also double down and, uh, and go a little bit harder on the bits that are proving, uh, proving successful. Yeah, we do it more than yearly. We okay. Constantly with our investments, we really look hard at the failures to say, what did we learn here? You know, what is this telling us? Um, our, our focus is on the end go goal, you mm -hmm. know, where we want to go. How we get there is flexible, you know, um, other than that, it's got to, you know, it's got to really move us, right? So, um, so that's what leaves us with a lot of flexibility to, to keep trying things as long as we're focused on how do we make something, you know, move the needle in a very big way. Yeah, no, absolutely. What's the key takeaway you'd love for our listeners to keep in mind after the podcast? If there's one thing that they could, um, that you think they should keep in mind after they listen to this show, what would that be? I think what it, for me it always has been is to think big, you know, to not, no one is interested in marginal change, frankly. It's just, no one is, you know, investors aren't, um, you know, donors aren't, you know, government's not. I mean, no, marginal change with the types of problems we're dealing with will get us nowhere because there'll always be tomorrow and next year and the year after. And there will always be excuses about why we can't do it that big and why it can't happen that fast. And you just can't accept that. You know, you've got to just say, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but how? <laughs> yes. You know? Okay. No, I don't want to know why it can't be done. I have like, no interest in knowing why it can't be done. I can list for you why it can't be done. I want to know how it can be done. You know, so I think with any investment to really think, all right, I'm only interested in dramatic change. And the, the questions and the conversation I want to have is about how. How can we do it? If that's what we're going to do, and we're going to be relentless on making that happen. How do we do it? I have had many conversations with people who are um, high net worth individuals who are thinking about getting into philanthropy. They're not quite sure where or why or how, or they just, they know they want to do it, but they don't know where to start. And as a consequence, they don't really start anywhere because they're time poor and, you know, time flies. So before you know it, Christmas comes around and you haven't done anything and and so forth and the years go by what do you what do you recommend to somebody who has um, some funds to allocate to philanthropy but doesn't really know where to start they're not a, a Pritzker or a Warren Buffett but you know they're they're somebody whose resources are valuable and what do you recommend I recommend them thinking about it the way they would think about a business investment, which is choose the right partner, right? You invest in a business where you have confidence in the CEO and the organization, um, where you believe in their strategy, and where you think you'll get a high return. And I would look at um, a nonprofit investment the same way. You know, where um, where is there a partner that I that can look me in the eye and say, I can deliver high returns for you, and I've done it in the past. So bet with me, and here's how I think we can make this happen. That sounds perfectly good to me. Uh, Janet, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on board today. Really, really great. I think we're going to have to have you on board in the near future once again as well. And, uh, and it's been very enlightening, and I appreciate everything that you're doing for uh, for, uh, for the society uh, in which you reside and the country at large. And I wish you continued success as you continue to push the boundaries 
and uh, and um, I like very much this notion of not being satisfied with marginal change. Good. You're welcome to join us, Alberto. <laughs> <laughs> I'm booking a flight right away. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it, and really appreciate the opportunity to talk about you know, what I think is really interesting space. And I think any business person that gets into it will get a high off of it way more than they get off of their investments in the private sector. Indeed, indeed. Take good care. All right, you too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Mm -hmm.